All right, welcome back into the Original Gangsters podcast. We are in audio, we are in video. Uh, we are uh, going like gangbusters in the spring of 2022. I'm your host, Scott Bernstein, along with my partner in crime, my co-conspirator, the Dr. Jimmy Bucciolato. Hi, everyone. Hey, now. And we are very, very pleased to, to uh, give you guys a guest that is the epitome of what an OG means. Uh, he is the, def- the, the definition of an OG when it comes to the streets of Detroit. Uh, Reggie Doc Davis, uh, thank you for joining us and uh, shedding some insight on, uh, on your life and, and, and both you know, in the streets and in the business world. Um, you've been able to transition pretty seamlessly and uh, really, you know, the way I like to, I'm going to hand it over to Reggie in a second. Well, the way I like to explain him to people that might not know, you know, the guy behind the guy behind the guy is that, you know, the archetype for what Big Big Meech became and the blueprint for what Black Mafia family became was started with uh, Doc and his family and his his group uh, in the 70s known as the DFG, the Davis, the Davis family group or the Davis family gang. And, and Reggie was at the, you know, the head of the snake. And they were a, a transnational, transglobal, um, nonviolent uh, diplomacy uh, and, and deal-making were always at the forefront. Um, and they made a lot of money and wielded a lot of juice and really anybody on the streets in the 70s that was uh, dabbling in, in, in the drug game, they were had a wholesale connection through Doc and his family. So thank you, Doc, for joining us. Glad to be here. The OG's OG. Right, OG, OG. That's a good phrase. <laughs> good cliche. Yeah, but it's true, you know. Uh, yeah. So, so Doc, you know, and, and let's just jump, jump off to the way I kind of teased it is I've done a, a number of interviews with, with Demetrius Flannery, Big Meech, and uh, he is a, a student of the game mm-hmm. in addition to being, a, you know, a pioneering force in his own right. Mm-hmm. And being from Detroit, um, I know that Demetrius and his brother and their crew from a young age, they were plotting and planning and using what you guys did with DFG, using what YBI did to a to an extent, mm-hmm. and using kind of uh, Henry Marzette, um, mm-hmm. who was the the late '60s, early '70s African American Don, mm-hmm. and then kind of mixed it with some of uh, you know the legends of, of the Italian OC world. I know we studied Lucky Luciano, we stuck he studied Meyer Lansky. Mm-hmm. And but but Reggie Davis was someone I know that that Big Meech looked to as this is the type of boss that I want to be. I want to be in the shadow. Well, <laughs> the ghost. Yeah, I, I don't there know was, about that. There was two, di- there was two different <laughs> Meech eras. <laughs> yeah. So right. in, in Meech's rise, yeah, yeah, he was right. in the shadows. Right. Right. And then he decided. Right. I've always said at a certain point, he said, "I'm the biggest drug dealer in America, and nobody nobody knows about it." Yeah. Uh, and that's that's where that was where his downfall came in. But um, you know, behind the scenes, never really touching the product, going outside of your comfort zone. I mean, Doc, you, I'm going to give it to you right now. Like you, you weren't just doing business in Detroit; you were on multiple continents. Right, on four different continents. Uh, we was in Amsterdam, Thailand, Pakistan, Mexico. Turkey. So, I mean, they were the plug's plug. So, like, in right. the 70s, whoever right. your plug was, Reggie and his family were their plug. Right. Um, and well, then at one point, you know, this is a tribu- you know, tribute to his criminal acumen. At one point when, when the, the DFG bus came down and Reggie went on the run for a couple of years, uh, the DEA declared him, uh, you know, public enemy number one. Top ten in North America. Top ten in North America. The only black on that list. Top 10. Only African American uh, drug kingpin on that list. So, you know, the government viewed him as as a very, very big, big time target. And right. and at the end of the day, you did what ten years? 
Yeah, about 10 years. Okay. So just, you know. I had, I had 45 years. I was on the old law. The old law of your nonviolent first offender, you only do but 10. And I only did 10. I got the other five balls. And then, yeah. you know, he's come out and, uh, you know, now he's, he's a businessman and, right. and uh, right. owns right. a lot of property and, and is someone that is, has shown that you can have a second chapter and you can become, you know, in some ways a, a titan of industry in the legitimate world mm-hmm. uh, after becoming a titan of industry in, That's in right. the underworld. That's right. If I can ask you about that, um, I, I, I'm getting out of the chronology here, so I apologize to people having difficulty following along, But because I, I want to ask about the end is this idea of, like, um, reinventing yourself, reimagining yourself as a, a legitimate business person with all these investments. From my experience, the federal government is usually very cynical and skeptical about that, and they still put a target on guys' back because they don't want to for the rest of their life. Yeah, is that true? Would you say? That, yeah, that, that is true. true. You'll be a target for the rest of your life until you pass. Until you pass. Yeah. Yep. You'll always be a target. Especially on you know on my level, yeah. Uh, you know, being able to reach out to several other several countries. Yeah. You know, so in so. other words, whatever you're involved in, investments and things like that, they're still keeping an eye on you because they're like, right. He's still up to something. He's up to something. Right, right. <laughs> Even though at this point it's, <laughs> right. it's been almost thirty. Right. He's been right. out of prison now almost thirty years. Yeah. Twenty seven right. years. Yeah. And even if they've, they there's nothing and he's and he's clean, they still don't want to believe it. No. <laughs> No, they think it's in, the, in my blood. Right. Yeah. That, I, that. Yeah, and they nicknamed me the comedian. <laughs> the comedian. The ghost and the comedian. The yeah. ghost, yeah. I was the real ghost. Yes. So, so uh, Doc, tell us, uh, you know, wh- where did you grow up when um, you were uh, growing up in the 60s, a uh, teenager? Well, uh, I was born in 52. And so you, but you were graduating uh, high school around the time that the riots happened, and right, I graduated in '69. Okay, so wow. right at right after the riots, yeah. Right and at what, what high school did you go to? Denby High. So you were east, or you were east side? No, I was west side. I got kicked out of Central for fighting, and I had a choice to go to either Denby or Osborne. I picked Denby, and I was only sometimes in certain classrooms. I was only black, black in that classroom because Denby then was really white. I was all white, and it was predominantly Italian. Yeah, that was East Side, right before you hit uh, Gross Point. Right, yeah. Like Harper Woods. And yeah, all that. yeah. That's where my grandparents, they lived before they went to, like, Macomb County. And, yeah. You know, right, then right, the Italians right. all went out to those areas. But So you, right. you, had, you had some family members in the, in the dope game that kind of taught you, you know, taught you the tricks of the trade. Well, it was my uncles. I was always intrigued with when they had the... They they had the ability to have the cash to go in and buy like three Cadillacs from Coffee Cadillac, pay cash for them, and I used to see them with pool tables full of money, and that always intrigued me. I was in college, I said, you know, but when I got to that fork in the road, I instead of going to the right, I went to the left, you know, looking up to my uncles and what was wrong, and they kept telling me to go to school, go to school, go to college, become a lawyer, become a lawyer, but I wouldn't listen. I was hard headed. This is like a Godfather type situation yeah. where the they're the gangsters, but they're telling him, "Do it straight. You don't want to be right. part of this." Right. Remember that was in the Godfather. He wants Michael Corleone. He doesn't right. want him to be a mafia. Right. So they didn't want be- me in the game. I had to. <laughs> right. I had to hide from him. I, I, I they hid. were more. Tell me if I'm wrong. They were more like street hustler. Uh, ga- they were gangsters. Yeah, they was real gangsters. And I'm not in trying fact, to disrespect Doc because Doc had definitely a gangster element to him. But, but I was but a businessman. Doc was a <laughs> was a drug kingpin that was more racketeer uh with diplomacy. A, a community leader and diplomat than ruthless uh, killer uh right. like like some right. other uh, right. that's uh how contemporaries uncle, yeah yeah of his. That's how my uncle them was, you know, and they, they had nicknamed him the sewer rat. The poli- the police department had back then had nicknamed was him that the Ke- sewer. Kenny? Kenny and um, it was it was Kenny, uh, Bobby, um, Kenny, Bobby, and and they nicknamed him the sewer rat because he he put bodies in. in no, the you, sewer I, 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 in my opinion, I, I could be wrong. I believe 
they the cause of the witness protection program because all their witnesses would disappear. <laughs> and one of my uncles, A.C. Ducey, he got caught one time driving, and he had left a hand in the car, and he got stopped with that hand in the car. And I would thought that would be real serious, but it was it was a misdemeanor. Just driving with a severed hand. Yeah, a severed was, body part. Yeah, with the with the with the fingers off. I guess know? if they can't find the rest of the body, you can't indict the. Guy. Right, right. I mean, I was surprised that it was a misdemeanor called chopping up a body. Though is a, a oh yeah is an offense. Yeah, yeah. It's called I think it was called battery or something yeah. back then. I can't remember the legal term. And they were they were West Side guys. There was East Side. They were East Side. They guys. controlled the East Side strong. They was okay. gangsters. They was real gangsters. So they were around Marzette. Right, that. right in that era. Yeah. So Henry Marzette, for people that don't know, uh, Henry Blaze Marzette. Um, was the the biggest African American uh, crime lord of the '60s? Um, he he's actually the way I like to explain to to people when I'm talking about Henry Marzette is I say think of the movie Training Day, and mm -hmm. think of Alonzo, and think that after that movie he gets caught and goes to prison, and then comes out, and instead of being a, a gangster veiled as a police officer. Because that's what Henry Marzat was. He was a very, right. very successful Detroit narcotics detective right. that like reached uh, certain uh, benchmarks that broke DPD records, right. uh, and it was a, a high school football star. And mm -hmm. uh, and uh, he got busted uh, shaking down drug dealers in the fifties and went to prison for I think it was only three, four years. Was he dealing yet at that point, or was it just extortion? I think well, he got no, busted it, for extortion. I okay. don't know if he was dealing or not. No, he he was dealing. He was a, one of the big biggest suppliers. And then he got and then he got out in. So I think he went to prison from like fifty eight to sixty two, mm. and then he came out in sixty two and and basically said I, I'm gonna kind of create what was the black mafia or organized right. crime in the black community that right. before had been very beholden to the Italians. Right. And Marzette was the first one to really kind of break off. Not to say he, he did business with the Italians, sure. but he was his own yeah. entity. Right. right, right. And those were like the guys that Doc's family were, were working My uncles, for. my uncles. Yeah. And, they, and, and Marzette was... Not necessarily a diplomat. Marzette was ruthless. Yeah, he was ruthless. They called it the Marzette method when they right. chopped off your fingers to, right. to get um, to get information on you. So, right. so what was the underworld rackets like? We we obviously we've got drug dealing, extortion, prostitution. Was it, was it gambling? Prostitute? Was it like traditional Num organized crime? Number, you had the numbers. Numbers. Yeah. Drugs. Eddie Wingate. Yeah, Claude. Uh, uh, Clarence Wingate. Claire, Clarence, no, Clarence and, Williams and, uh, and Clarence Williams and Eddie Wingate. Right, and, right, and Eddie Wingate. Yeah. So gambling so, was uh, a lucrative. It was real those... big. Uh, the number, the number racket was real big back then. Real big. I mean, I remember one time um, Wingate's brother got caught with. I mean, they went in the house and found seven or eight million dollars, <laughs> but wow. they had, but they had to give it back to him and with the interest because they pay their taxes. And they would they 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 was known as gamblers. They would set up those oh. guys would set yeah. up businesses yeah. that were incorporated oh. with the state. Right. Those numbers they'd call them the mutual houses. Right. And those numbers houses uh, they would pay like like Doc saying they'd so, pay taxes. So that was like a an right. early prototype of like legalized gambling. Yeah. Before it was <laughs> before the lottery. Yeah. Before yeah. the lottery. Before the lottery. <laughs> That's yep. interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's yep. that's pretty they, smart. Yeah, and they own cabs. They own race. All, mostly all the horses at DRC. At the at and then the race. they had the and then nice. I'm interested to get Doc's take on this. And then they had, you know, connections and and links and business wise, drug wise into the music industry awesome. with Motown. Right. Eddie Wingate, who's the name we've been throwing out the last couple minutes, was the number. You know, uh, Eddie Mars. Or sorry. Henry Marzette was the crime lord. Uh, Eddie Wingate was the numbers racket boss. Right. And uh, really controlled a big chunk of the, num the African-American numbers ring. Yeah, he uh, made millions in the 60s, 50s, yep. 60s, 70s, into the 80s. But uh, Wingate was a, a, a record label owner and owned, I believe it was called Golden World Records. Mm -hmm. And it was started the same time Motown was started. And uh, they were competitors for uh, the late 50s into the early 60s. Mm -hmm. And then Wingate sold out 
to Barry Gordy. Barry Gordy bought Golden World Records, absorbed mm -hmm. it, right. took all of his artists. A number of those artists became, uh, you know, Motown artists. And um, Wingate opened up the 20 grand. Right. Which was both a nightclub and a hotel. Right. And uh, that was downtown? Or that was, was no, it was on... 14th or 12th, it was in on the west side. Yeah, it was on the west downtown. side. It was by okay. Motown. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay, so the he would Hitsville. Break, yeah. He'd break right. a lot of the yeah. art. He'd, he'd send the artists to 20 grand uh, and, and put them uh, on stage to 20 grand before they would go on uh, on tour or before or, or they... concerts, the yeah. big concerts. Who were some of those artists? Do you know all, all that? All, every, all si every single Motown artist. No, I mean I mean the, the ones that he had first. Do you know any of the names? Oh, yeah. Of the... So he had um, the dramatic... The drama Oh. The Dramatics, the... Hold on, I'm going to look it up. I know Dramatics was the one that played a lot at the 20 Grand because I used to give him after parties after. Yeah, he had the oh, Dramatics. Oh, man, that's cool. And that's he, really cool. Yeah. <laughs> I know he was in a... He was, Eddie Wingate was in a... Um, the Fabulous Dramatics. Yeah, Dramatics. <laughs> yeah, I love the Dramatics. One of my, one of my awesome. high school friend's dad was in the Dramatics. Oh, really? Yeah. That's pretty Shout awesome. Shout out Tanya Banks. That's awesome. Um, the... Uh, the... the, the, the um, what happened in the riots uh, in, that, that they depicted in the film Detroit, yep. uh, one of those people that got tortured, really, at that hotel by those DPD officers and what people believe didn't start the riot but took the riot to a whole yeah. other level. Escalated. Uh, yeah. Escalated. Yeah, it, it escalated. This was yeah. all in the summer of 67. One of those guys was the lead singer of the dramatics and had come from... To Motown from Eddie Wingate. I'm trying to get his name. Was it Willie Ford or a Squirrel or? But it, and then I believe Edwin Starr. Oh yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Came, Edwin, came yeah. from. Uh, yeah, them. I know that. Yep, yeah. yep. Yeah. Yeah. Edwin uh, Starr was one of. But but so there became an inseparable. I mean, in some ways, a bond, a, a connection that got reported a little bit but never to the extent that you thought it was where Eddie Wingate had free reign at Motown. <laughs> I mean, he right. was... He was he, he had a lot of money. Yeah. So I'm interested that money in... Is you know, do you remember going? I mean, this would have been the early 70s, going to the uh, some of those... Uh, the 20 grand, yes. Yeah. Because I used to give the... Especially dramatics, I used to give my after party downtown. I had a place downtown where Stevie Wonder was. He had a place also. There had Regent Square Apartments. Down by Lafayette, I used to give them after party every time they performed at the Twenty Grand. Would, yeah. would Stevie show up to the no would he party no. with you guys? No, no. He, no oh he man. Show up. <laughs> no. Yeah, so I'm looking at this right. So the Dramatics were originally signed by Eddie Wingate and Golden World Records, and then when uh, Eddie sold uh, sold out to Barry Gordy in 1964. Uh, that Motown took them. Oh, 1967, Motown, had, or by 1967, it said they had absorbed mm -hmm. uh, uh And then at the beginning of the, the riots, mm -hmm. uh, one of the lead singers was uh, was was tormented in that uh, Virginia, what was it called? Uh, the, Virginia uh, Park Motel. Yeah, Algiers Motel. Algiers, 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 Algiers Motel Algiers, on Virginia yeah. Park uh, yeah. Boulevard. I would, yeah. I would put, not to digress too much here, but I would put, 60s Detroit up against London, New York, and the, the music, LA the music for the scene? music scene. For, it wasn't just yeah. Motown. It wasn't Motown. You had hard, rock hard and roll. Rock, yeah. Glam rock. Yeah, he had every, everything. Punk. It was right. all, they were playing a lot of the same venues and stuff. Yeah. And, 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 and that rock music was influenced by Motown. And it was right. just, it, it was just and some like, of the most influential music. Yeah, and, some, and a lot of their the musicians, they, 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 the music guys, that the drummers and the, and you know all the different guys, they start playing for a lot of superstars all over the country. Yeah, yeah. and all those yeah. guys were. Yeah, I was gonna say dabbling in drugs, but I think they were doing well, they more party. than dabbling. They were big partiers, <laughs> and especially the dramatic. The, yeah, the guys like <laughs> uh, Doc and you know Eddie Jackson and Courtney Brown and uh, yeah. Marzette and you know other guys of that ilk. I think Frank Nitti as the as the Usher. decade went on, right? Like they were feeding our Detroit's biggest uh, R and B 
rock and roll, um, you know, it, all the genres were, I mean, I've, I told Jimmy the story that I heard about the Michigan Palace, mm-hmm. um, uh, and, and uh, um, uh, it was either Van Halen or Aerosmith. I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on it. Probably they, Aerosmith, because Van Halen was a little bit later. Yeah, Probably and, Aerosmith. and Aerosmith was like, where's our drugs? Yeah. And they right. called Jimmy Quasarano from the, you know, from the Italian uh, drug dealer. And, uh, you know, because the, the Michigan Palace was owned by a, a mob associate. And within a half hour, you know, this old school uh, Italian uh, uh, Don comes and feeds Steven Tyler and Joe Perry cocaine. Yeah, can right. you imagine the... Think about you can't think of two more contrasting yeah, right? lifestyle because Jimmy Q was like a sourpuss, like yeah. a <laughs> old right. school Italian guy. He wasn't rock and roll at all. So, uh, Red, did, <laughs> right. you, were you, did you see that? Like, uh, you know, there, there was definitely a a lot of color, colorful characters. A lot of like the it was a very vibrant music scene that you were seeing from a you weren't seeing it from the music industry. You were seeing it from kind of an aspiring party hustler. Yeah. Yeah. The party part of it. Yeah. And, and what did, uh, what are the things you remember most, you know, in terms of a, a socially when you were getting started um, in the game in, in the early seventies and where would you guys go and hang out? Where, where was the place for all well, the players to be? Uh, well, I didn't really, my family really didn't hang out cause I had a big family. It was 14 of us. And usually we'll, we we would roll for about four months, and then we'll pick some place in the world to go for two or three months, and uh, we would party out of town. We wouldn't party in town. So yeah, so let's let's transition to the the I call yeah. it the Shadow Empire, uh, is what what the DFG right. became. Yeah. And uh, it's so on, just except except the twenty grand. Right. We used to go because I love the dramatics. Yeah. That was the only time we would go out, you know? We so were, by, by mid-70s, you're starting to expand? Yes. And you, you said you, got a, you had a family of 14 siblings? 14 siblings, uh, 10, by, 10 by my father. He had 10. He was married before my mom, my mom married him. He had four. So I had four half-brothers and sisters so, and 10. And I remember asking them one of the first times I sat down with you, I was like, Explain to me your organization, and you're just like, this is the part that, you know, when, when you study it from, like, a, you know, a socioacademic perspective, it's like DFG had this, because of the, how, the re, how big their reach was, how much money they were making, the perception from at least someone who was starting to study it is that this, it was this multi-layered organization with all of these subunits within subunits and docs like no dude we were slick and sleek and efficient all the fat was trimmed off the bone and it was basically doc and his family it's like and who who else you know you can't there's no one you can trust more than your family he didn't have workers and enforcers like his family was they were all doing the business together they had a guy in each area of the world that was kind of their boots on the ground but there was no, um, high, you know, necessarily a hierarchy or a, or a, a pyramid of an organization. It was just a the bunch family. of brothers and sisters and nieces and nephews. That's right. That's right. Clocking. We yeah. would in like uh, the criminological research. We would talk about that as a a network, a network analysis more than like traditional like mafia organization right, or right, something. Right, That's more right. of a more of a network of a big family. Yeah. Right. And. And at one time they had to call my mom the matriarch of the family. <laughs> Ma Barker. Remember mom like, Barker, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, she was something else. She was something else. So how did you know, so where did the you know I talked about how Demetrius and BMF used DFG as a big inspiration. Right. Where did your inspiration come from? I mean, you had never seen anyone, either east side or west side of Detroit, that stepped outside of Detroit and, and started you know, making inroads into the uh, international uh, underworld. I mean, you were, like you said, you're in Thailand, you're in uh, Pakistan, uh, you're in Ghana. Like, how, how did that, how did you build that? How did you come to even think that you could build that? Well, as you know, like I said, we used to travel a lot. And when I traveled, I used to meet different people. And, you know, and a lot of those people I met was in the drug game. You know, just like the guy, the tie I met 
on a fishing trip in uh, in in Hawaii, and uh, Pakistani guy when I was in Pakistan, and uh, Dwayne had met the guy the Turk the Turk in in uh, Amsterdam, so we we was to meet people because we traveled a lot. We traveled a lot. Yeah, and so you would meet different people. You would, you would meet you would meet squares too, but <laughs> I gravitated toward. Seemed like I gravitated. Like-minded individuals. Right, right. <laughs> For some reason, I gravitated toward um, guys that was in control, big control, big distributors. So you before know? before you, so I think it's this interesting from a business model because once you're dealing with Thai and Pakistani. Uh, dealers. Now mm-hmm. you can go right to the source because today most heroin comes from Mexico, but back right. then most yeah, of it was, it was coming, coming from, from Thailand. Thailand right. had what they call number four, which is ninety-seven point four pure. And like I used to deal with with, with uh, Young Boys Incorporated and Pony, they just take they used to take one key, one key, and make thirty keys of mixed jive. So each one of them a week to ten days, they would sell sixty keys. Of mixed jab in in a week and ten days. Yeah, I you know I used to get they I used to get a meal a meal a piece from each one. So it's just funny to think like the public perception. That's how was, strong that stuff was. Yeah, <laughs> wow! But the public perception and the mythology and the history. I mean, to this day, is that it didn't get any bigger than YBI from '78 to and the ponies '83 and the ponies. They was competitive. But in reality, no, I know. But in reality, YBI. But what I'm saying is, in reality, DFG was bigger than I was YBI supplying and Pony Down. Yeah, I was right. supplying them. Yeah. I was supplying them. That's right. how they made their money. Right. So who were yeah. who were your suppliers before the Pakistani and Thai guys? Where who did you go? Well, to? My uncle. See, my uncle name was hooked up with some Mexicans out of uh, California. Interesting. Okay. Right. So I was in college, and I told you uh, it intrigued me to see the money they had, and I thought when you have that type of money that you rob banks to get it. <laughs> <laughs> right. I did, I did. Yeah, yeah. And I used to ask my uncle, I said, where you get all that money from? He said, one day I'll show you, but I want you to stay in college. I want you to become a lawyer. So he did show me. He took me down on John R. Erskine. And when he took me down there, I, when I saw the cars and the people and the money going, and it, it just intrigued me. I just, you know. And then I dropped out of college and hid from my uncle. I brought me a place, uh, a rooming house at 281 Erskine, and... I started doing my little thing, and I grew and grew and grew. And so after I got so big, after I got so big, my uncle and them took me to their connect in California. Then after a while. And at, his, at your peak, and I'm sorry to interrupt, I didn't go, but at your peak, you weren't even living here, right? You're out in L.A. Right. Right, Beverly Hills. Go ahead. Right, I stayed too. I stayed, <laughs> I still remember the address. It's 2180 Coldwater Canyon Drive in Beverly Hills. I stayed 1450 Rising Glen Road in West in, in uh, West Hollywood. So this is late 70s. West Hollywood. I stayed Marina Del Rey, 4411 Ella Road, Madonna Way in Marina Del Rey. And we had a manufacturing company at 8651 Hayden Place, Robert Bucks Industrial Park. Up so then even in when... In Carver City, California. Even at the peak of their drug activity, they were diversified. Right. And, you, and, you, and uh, there were shell companies for the shell companies... And legitimate businesses where they could co-mingle illegitimate funds. And one big enterprise I was getting ready to get into, but I, but before I could get into it, I got arrested in Miami. I was going to import rice, legitimately, not rice trying to smuggle drugs. I was going to import rice from Thailand to the, the islands, to Europe, to America. And I had the papers in my briefcase when I got arrested. And I think that might be one of the reasons they put me on the on the top 10 in North America list, among other things. I think that that's, that really did it when they saw those papers signed and I was was going to be partners with the Thai government and, you know. So uh, that's what I... Powerful was, men of color scare the United States government. <laughs> no, no, you know why, though? I'm going to tell you something. Okay, look, if someone had the propensity to organize and they in drugs or whatever, numbers or whatever... Suppose they turn the other way and right. become terrorists or become, you know, that's why they're so worried a threat. About, that's why they're so worried about Demetrius, Big Meech. I mean, right. all, almost there were 200 people in that BMF bust and 100 and 
I believe 97 of them or 198 of them are home already, uh, including his brother, who was his, you know, the number... Thierry. Yeah, the number one or one B defendant or number two defendant, J-Bo, right. the number three defendant. Uh, they're all home. They've been home for a while now, and right. and they, uh, they don't want to let Meech out because of what we're talking right now. They don't know... That influence that Demetrius has. Yeah, he got a big influence. He's gonna organize. If he's gonna use it for good or is he gonna use it for bad? Right, that's what they're afraid of. You'll be like they had us on the blacklist. They call it the blacklist. People that's a threat against the United States. Among uh, and on that list was Mary Young. Mary Young. Oh yeah. But but the lawyers guild made them um, found out about it and made them give all their material back and stop it, and stop it because it was against our. Right, constitutional right. Well, so, what and what happens to now? Really, just to go on my political soapbox for a moment. What really is, the government is afraid of? It's 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 not Meech. It's Dr. King. Yeah. And Malcolm. And right. George Jackson. That, that, that's <laughs> and why they were, That's why they was afraid of them. <laughs> right. Once you make it political, the, then they're really afraid. When you make it political, right. they're afraid, and they're they, and they look ahead. Yeah. They say, but suppose this guy, yeah. 10 years down the line, get out the drug game right. and start becoming an advocate toward... Uh, yeah, empowerment. Empowerment like and... Civil you know, rights. Civil rights and all that. Yeah, then That's, what they're, really, afraid. That's then, what they're afraid of. Yeah, then, then he'll really have a target. You think he has a target on him now? So let's talk a little bit about Doc's The, the End. So, mm-hmm. you know, Doc reaches the pinnacle, uh, him and his family, and uh, there's really nowhere to go, unfortunately, but down because the government's not gonna you know you, you you could have a right he and doc had a long run at the end of the day he had 15 about a years 15 year run 15 which years. is also you know that's uh, because we was invisible and now exactly uh, analogous to, to demetrius and bmf but um and we wasn't flashy at all right no was, nobody knew <laughs> nobody knew who you were like and, they were they were ghosts and that was a real contrast to some of the other yeah Dudes, you're talking about right. right. Those those guys were like very flamboyant. Well, IBI wanted right. to be on the cover of the right. Detroit Free Press. Right. They wanted to lead the I, news on Channel Four and Channel Two. Right. right. I think I'm the one started the uh, drug dealers wearing the button down shirts and the, and the Gucci loafers, the blue jeans, the sweaters. Dressing like a businessman, not yeah. like a gangster. Yeah. Not like a gangster with the big hats, all the well, jewelry. What, not like Superfly. Right. <laughs> well, that's what like Demetri- so Demetrius Holloway. I mean, that's what, you know, he dressed in business suits. He didn't, yep. yeah. he wasn't in. I was the, very conservative. The Nike Adidas yeah. tracksuits. Giant, Not to say anything against tracksuits. Giant fur coats. Yeah. Right. Like that. Right. right. I was very conservative. But, uh, so let's talk about the bus came down what year? 80? It was 83. Okay, bus came down in 83, and you take off. Right. And you're on the run for two years? I was on the run for three years. I went to three the Bahamas. Years. I was staying at the Iron Shore Villas in Mo Bay, in Montego Bay. Mo Bay. Well, that's what they the nickname for it, but it's Montego Bay. I was there for a while and I would visit I would I would fly in and I would visit um my kids every Christmas. I had someone bring my kids up to Ann Arbor and I would give them their Christmas money. And then I would leave and go back. But one of one of one of my friend's wife got in trouble, and when she got in trouble, she, she knew that I would come up to Ann Arbor once a year. And when she, she got to get out of jail free card, right, right, right. She's the one who snitched on you. Yeah, she's the one who snitched on me. And then the guy that used to take the bags in, I would I would give him a thousand dollars every Christmas. After she snitched on me, they they circulated all my cards to all the major motels in Ann Arbor. And they say, if you see this guy, call us. And the same guy, it was an older guy, I can remember, a dark-skinned older guy, I used to give him $1,000 just every Christmas. And he was the one that called him and said, I see him, he's here now. But I wasn't staying at that same hotel, I was at another hotel. Mm-hmm. You know? So, and coinc- it was a coincidence, the hotel that I was staying in, other than the hotel that the guy had told him I was at, they all came to Rendezvous to see how they was gonna come get me, so they saw me on the phone, and they and they and they um. They said they looked at me. I saw a guy look at me, then I saw another guy come look at me. They said, uh, "What's your name?" I said, "My name is Charles Johnson." Cause, cause back then I had connects in different um, uh, motor vehicle places, 
where I can just go in, take the picture, and in yeah. some places you get the license the same day. Some they mail them to you. I had that that kind of contact, but so you had different IDs. You had yeah, different... I had about twelve Ellis's. <laughs> but but this, I told him I was Charles Johnson, and I showed him my ID. I showed him credit cards, everything in it. But they said you look like somebody we look at. They said, "Oh man!" Then they said, "We're not gonna let you go. We're not gonna let you go till we know who you are." Yeah. But they had walked away. They must have talked to their supervisors because because I had legitimate driver license, and you know, back then that was unheard of. Right. Because they had mentioned to my attorney, they said, "How did he get legitimate driver license?" They couldn't understand that you, connections. Yeah. It's all about who you know and having a little money, you know. Yeah. And I knew, I knew, I knew uh, people in that works for the driving bureau in Arizona, Chicago. Yeah. So they actually weren't fake IDs. Not, I mean, no, I mean, they, they wasn't were, they fake. Were they was kind real. Of illegitimate in a way, but they were they were actual issues. They weren't forged. Right. They were state issued licenses. <laughs> state issued licenses. So, so they were Absolutely. like, these are good. These are. They right. probably are, you weren't used to seeing. He was like an they international man they, of because, mystery. He was right. like Detroit's own Austin Powers. Right. Yeah, because right. they asked my lawyer, said, "How do you get this real ID?" <laughs> <laughs> and then I kept sticking with what I was Charles Johnson all the way to the bullpen. And then Robert Mann, who was our family lawyer, he came he's, and he told me, he said, you might as well tell them who you are because they're not going to let you go until they know. And then I had this, I had, it, it was a way that we could pick our fingerprints. We always, we always keep like a safety pin up on our collar. And then if anything happened, we, like while we handcuffed, yeah. we, would, we would pick our fingers with that little pin. And I be who I was Charles Johnson. You know what I'm talking about? But man said, go ahead and tell them who you are. And you know, so I you, went on and told them who I was. Do you think you know? in retrospect that was the right decision? Just get it over with or I I made a bad choice. That was a bad choice because I had nothing to do with that indictment. It was my older brother Gerald. Yeah, so that's okay. let's see, talk let's talk see, about that for a sec. See, I was on my way to Italy. My son, I was married to an Italian. And every year we take my son to see his family in Italy. Yeah. And I was on my way to Italy when they came to arrest me. And um, um, man came with the indictment first. Man came with the indictment first. And you're talking about Bob Mann, who was a defense, yeah, criminal yeah. defense attorney back then. And it was a 57 count 848. And I looked at the, the indictment and all the verdicts on the indictment. And I said, I got nothing to do with none of this. I was in California. It was my brother. And my baby brother playing a game on some agents out of Chicago. They were telling they and, were and, telling these F, these FBI DEA guys that they was doc. That they were doc. That they was doc. Cause I was out of the game. I was living in California with a manufacturing company and everything. You know, so um, so two years they did business with them. They they made sales. They traded the lollas for heroin and. They did a lot of stuff, and they took that information to the grand jury, and they indicted my name, but that wasn't my action. And like you said, in the very beginning, when they arrested me in Ann Arbor, I should have went on and got it. I mean, before I ran, yeah. I, when man showed me the indictment, I should have went on and got it over with, because it was nothing about me. Nothing on that indictment was me. Yeah. You know? And then nothing really happened to my older brother, except they jumped on him and beat him up, and, and he had an aneurysm, and later on yeah. he died. Oh, you know, R.I.P. They didn't want your older brother. <laughs> it's the same thing with Demetrius. Like, right. it's the gift and the curse of being top dog. Like, you know. Why were they, why were your brothers, were they using his name just to inflate their own? Because No, know. but listen, this is what happened. Let me tell you the story because yeah. I found out the story later. Yeah. Okay. It was a guy named Clay that knew me, right? So... Clay is the one that told the agents out of Chicago, where they, where the, the Detroit agents was probably working with the ones out of Chicago. But these guys was out of Chicago. They had Mercedes Benz, jewelry, and all that. So Clay, um, he approached my baby brother, Kenneth, and asked him that these guys wanted to meet Doc. And so Kenneth knew I was out of the game, and I ain't going to meet no new, no strangers. Yeah. So he took him to my older brother, who was staying in one of my houses, he had he was married to an Italian girl. Me and him had a baby at the same time. He had Angelique, I had Vito. One of the agents was calling Angelique Vito because they really thought that Gerald was me. Mm -hmm. But it but it, it it was wrong. But later on, that's what we wanted to bring out in the documentary with the legal stuff. Later on, when they did find out, they kept a hush hush. 
That's a, a structural. It was a big, big fuck up. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. They kept it hush hush. Now one of the agents got fired. Richard Smith. He got he got fired. Then he sued him and you know and everything because he was the supervising agent. And they took the case from him and gave it to him. I've heard agent. of that name before, Richard Smith. He didn't he investigate the Italians too. I, that name sounds familiar. I don't know, but don't he know. he was a supervisor for for us on our case. Yeah. I don't I think know he was under it. Defoe. Yeah, I was gonna say that name sounds familiar. Yeah. Right. Right. But, uh, but uh, that's but, that's but, like as crazy and as uh, as much of a unicorn as the as Doc's story and and what DFG became and what Doc built DFG into is as nutty as that the the legal uh, you know their their journey through the legal system yeah where you know. <laughs> It, it's it's not doing your due diligence in, right. as federal law enforcement and then getting caught with your pants down and and then we're not and then doc's not saying that he he was uh you know he he wasn't guilty of, of narcotics no. trafficking but he's saying just like any other criminal saying if you're gonna get me you, you get me clean that's right just like the, uh some of the paperwork the legal paper that I wanted al to show is the five cases we beat we beat yeah we beat three jury trials and two dismissals. And three of those, two of those trials was involving $20 million worth of heroin. And and I, and see, if if you would look at my documentary, the things that Al was saying, some people wouldn't believe it. They said, no, it wasn't, that, that didn't happen, that didn't happen. But he had proof to show it, but yeah. he, he didn't show it. He was supposed to interview Richard Smith, and I don't know why. We're, we're gonna believe me. We're gonna be uh, us here at the OG Pod and and <laughs> everything. That, I'm serious. The stuff that we're we're trying to build with this brand, we're gonna give you that opportunity, and and we hope to help right. you uh, right. expose this right uh, in, in the near right. future. Because I wanted him to show all the acquittal papers, all the dismissals, and and the and the story, the real story. That was my brother, Gerald, right. playing I've read, me. I've read through the documents, and I know yeah. that. This has been vetted, and what he's saying has merit to it. And the government was just so embarrassed by it, they they decided. But but to... but they were supposed to bring it to the court's attention. They officers of the court. When they found out it was not me and it was Gerald, they should have brought it to the attention of the yeah. courts. The good news is, for him and his, and and the other members of his group and his family, that they didn't get life sentences. Um, they did, I mean, you, 10 years of your life is 10 years of your life. No, they gave me a 45-year sentence. But well, what I'm saying is at the end of the day, you walked out after 10. You, if you, under the old law, right. if you got 45 years, right. you only do 10 years if there's no violence or none of that. You know? So, but the new law is different. The new yeah. law, you, you had to do 85% of that right. 45 years. And back in that time, 45 years was a lot of time for anybody to yeah. get. Yeah. Yeah, then you've got... Eventually, by the '90s, you get three strikes and you're out. So then they'll state, yeah, yeah right. State. They'll they'll put you away if it's your third right felony. Right, there's no chance for parole. You're done. Like, you're you're well, done. done. The feds will do that with racketeering now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know in Philadelphia, um, Stevie Mazzone is looking right now. I don't. This is a, we're digressing, but uh, the underboss of the Philly mob right now. You know, if he gets convicted of this racketeering case he's facing right now, that's I believe that's at least two. So I mean, he's got to watch himself because of that. Is that and that's narcotics? It's not murder. No, though, right? he, he's not. Uh, he's actually not. His nephew was charged. That's Grande. His that's nephew narcotics. Grande and a couple other guys were charged in the drug case. He's just racketeering. I see. But uh, you know, he did. He got convicted in racketeering in 2001 of being the underboss of the Philly mob. Now he's indicted again as the underboss of the Philly mob, mm. facing a racketeering. So if he if he gets convicted of it at trial and does and decides not to roll the dice, he's gonna get hit hard, and it he's and get then, it, then it opens it up where you know the next time you're you're done, yeah, your life. It gets rid of all judicial discretion, yeah. Yeah. which isn't good in my opinion. I don't I don't no. I think three strikes. It's but a I bad, that's you, a bad law. I got a question for you since yeah. you're in the criminology. Um, they they always say imprisonment or fine. Why never be defined? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> answer that good, question. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, I think it's both. They, some, they some both. Yeah, sometimes they, they give do. you both of them, but it's yeah. why they put the or in there. Right. It's, they should say imprisonment and fine. 
Not yeah. imprisonment or fine. Yeah, because every time I've heard of someone paying a fine, that was in addition to yeah. incarceration. Right. I had a seven hundred fifty thousand yeah. dollar fine, but 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 man, got it down to fifteen thousand. Well, I know, like uh, Merlino, right now again going back to Philadelphia. You know, Joe Merlino, based on his two most recent cases, he has a bill almost a million dollars of the government. That yeah, he needs to pay back. I think yeah, I think it's. I mean, it's just the. the I think Sylvester Murphy do yeah. the big. And, and then there are other people I know, and, and I guess this is this is just evidence that you know the government's the biggest mob there is. Yeah, I, I, know, I know people come Lee. out of, come out of prison uh, for you know they've been in prison for thirty years, twenty five years. They walk out, first thing they get is a bill. They're like, right. this is the bill for us incarcerating your ass for the last thirty years. Right. But why do they say or? Why do they don't change that language, that verbiage? Why did why they don't say imprisonment and fine, not imprisonment or fine? Because they want to give you like what's the absolute max and then what's the absolute minimum? Yeah, it's a. Uh, I, I suppose it's theoretically possible that it could just be a fine, but you're right. In practice, it never. It, it never happened. It never, never, never ever. Why did they put it in the language? Hey, doctor. Yeah. Before yeah, we uh, question. before we wrap up, uh, I remember you told me. Um, you had some interactions with uh, Tony Jack when you guys were locked up? Yeah, I was locked up with Tony Jack. Right. And I Upa, uh, the other boss of Chicago. Chicago. What, what, yeah. What, what were but, those guys like? It was in Atlanta, right? No, it was in Rochester, Minnesota. Rochester, Minnesota, okay. And, and my uncles and them dealt with Jack. They they yeah. dealt, they did a lot of business with Jack Loney. Yeah. Violent business. Billy and Tony, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what, when you were in Minnesota... Rochester, Minnesota. Yeah. I was the work cadre. That's right. that's a hospital. Right. And that's where they would send all the major mob guys, and the mayor of Syracuse was there. Um, it was it, it was a lot of influential people there. Jim Baker was there. Yeah. There's a picture. Uh, there's a picture of Billy <laughs> Jim Giacalone, Baker, Jim Baker, and Bob Probert from that from <laughs> oh my Rochester, God. Rochester, Minnesota. Minnesota. Wow, yeah. what a motley crew. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so what was uh, what were those guys like on the compound? Scary. I had to protect Jim Baker. He was yeah. scared. <laughs> but Jack Aloni had, you know, he was strong. He held his own, you know what I'm talking about? He had no leg. He, right, he had one leg. One leg. So yeah, he, he was but you wouldn't know it, though, because he had it. They, they let him keep his leg, so yeah. you wouldn't know it. Sure. Why did Why did he hit? Was that something from birth? I can't yeah, remember no, when he uh, he got ran over by a, a milk truck. Oh, when he's a kid when or something. When he was like, like eight or nine years old. So Vito was incarcerated there, but he, not not Tony. Right, Tony. He was. He it was with, Tony. Uh, oh, oh, both of them. No, no, just one of them was incarcerated with me oh, in Rochester. Yeah, it was Billy. Okay. Okay. We are William. Yeah. Yeah. They were. They were because Billy was there in the early nineties. Yeah, because. Uh, was based on the the bus that with the Isaiah. Was Thomas it the uh, Scartosi or somebody was telling us about? It. He yeah, would, he went, went to Minnesota, Minnesota to, because Jackie was there. They to wanted meet with, to tickle the wire. They wanted, they wanted to, to tell him right. something and then get him to call Jackie on the phone and get them to right. hear the conversation. Right, which they never they kind of never took the bait, but that's what yeah. they were trying to. Right, so they're trying to. And do. then Rochester, Minnesota, was next to Mayo Clinic, one of right. the top ten hospitals. What was Joey, What was Joey Ayupa like? Oh, he's a nice guy. I used to play cards with him. He taught me how to play G. <laughs> This is, I was one of his favorites. I was one of his Joey favorites. Joey Iupa was like one of Capone's that's a, drivers. That's, that's a huge name. Yeah, yeah. And ran the Chicago mob. Uh, he was like the Tony Jack of the, you know, the way Tony Jack ran Detroit on the street. Uh, Joey Iupa ran Chicago from the early 70s uh, yeah. into, the, into the late 80s. Iupa, and I was everybody. And I was, and what's going was there from New Orleans. What's his name? Carlos Marcelo. Carlos Marcelo. Oh, no shit. Wow. Yep. Yeah, you're talking about a guy who might yeah. have had JFK. Right. No, don't what? say that. <laughs> this was great, man. I, I loved, I loved uh, having you in uh, in studio for this. Uh, I'm glad I, to I be can't, here. I can't tell you how much we, our gratitude, how much we appreciate it. Uh, yeah, I'm this glad what, to be here. This is what it's about, people. I mean, getting the OGs themselves to the, to, to the share true the story. perspective and yeah. insight and break down the mythology from the inside out. Mm-hmm. And uh, Doc has done it all. He said it all. And uh, let people know first, you know, is there anything you want to, to promote? or? I know well, I would to- like to say to the younger, younger group, don't take that direction. When you get to that fork in the road, stay to the right. Don't go to the left, you know? And because uh, there's a lot of money to be made legally now. You Especially know? now. Especially in technology. Yeah. Where did you go to college, by the way? Where were you going? I, I went to Ferris State and Cumberland College. Okay. 
and in New Orleans. In New Orleans? No, not in New Orleans, New Jersey. And I went to Ferris State in Big Rapids, Michigan. Okay, did you finish? No, I didn't finish because I... You make too much money? (laughs) I went all the way. Yeah, Yeah. right. That's similar to uh, Shameless Self-Promotion, but an episode we did with Big Pete, who was the boss of the Outlaws Motorcycle Club in Chicago. He was a guy who was at University of Wisconsin, I think. Like, again, very intelligent, bright dude. But he wanted to be an outlaw. Yep. <laughs> right. He didn't want to be. Right. There's a lot of guys like that. They like that lifestyle. Yeah. It's Th- the lifestyle. This yeah. was great. We're going to uh, have uh, Doc back on. Hopefully, we can bring on Dwayne. And, you know, Dwayne, Dwayne was or is, you know, he's a brilliant, brilliant legal mind. Yes. He, uh, he works for a lot of attorneys. People, uh, I've heard people tell stories about Dwayne In fact. from inside. But, about how he but, in, had, but in fact, Meech called me for Dwayne to help yeah. him with his appeal. Long, but I don't know how many years ago. It was maybe 10 years ago. Yep. Yep, because Dwayne got a lot of guys out of jail. He, he was Dwayne, a jailhouse lawyer. Right. And, and I've talked and to a lot it, of people that talked about how he helped them and how right. he has such a, uh, a master understanding of, of uh, right. the appellate process. And he can really, as great as Doc can tell, Tell, tell the story. Dwayne can even get you know more into the weeds in terms of that case, mm-hmm. and uh, I want to bring yeah. I want to bring him on, and then I want to you know just you know the the, the bigger we get and the more we grow, mm-hmm. I want to be able to bring people like Doc uh, along and, and help mm-hmm. them have a platform. Mm-hmm. So please uh, check uh, uh, like subscribe. Uh, share on our uh, on social media. We're going to be getting on YouTube real soon. Uh, or if you're watching this, we're already on YouTube. Please subscribe. Uh, we're going to be bringing you great content uh, in a more multimedia fashion going forward. Uh, thank you, Doc Davis. Thank you, Mark. Thanks uh, for having me here. Behind Thanks. the board. Uh, Jimmy, you got anything else to say? Yeah, just uh, like Scott mentioned, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, Twitter, YouTube, at Gangster Podcast. Please follow us, and thanks for listening. Thanks, Doc. We'll see you next week. Thanks, Doc. uh, Scott Bernstein, Jimmy Bucciolato, OG Podcast, out.